He was reported by a CVS worker who was processing photographs and thought, man, these photographs are kind of odd. They're kind of strange. Like, why are these kids being photographed with cookies in their mouths halfway? And why are they being photographed with cockroaches on their arms and on their bodies? Welcome to The Lionhearted, a true crime podcast featuring stories of the brave badasses who spend their lives fighting child sexual abuse. Join me, your host and forensic interviewer, Andrea Harner, as we get up close and personal with these unforgettable stories. The story we are talking about today requires a longer-than-usual intro and a trigger warning right at the outset because of the shocking details of the crime. We will cover the case of the largest single payout that any school district in the country has ever paid to date. $139 million. So you can imagine how egregious the case had to have been. It involves the Miramonte Elementary School, which is a part of the Los Angeles Unified School District. My guest today, Michael Carrillo, was one of the civil attorneys for the dozens, and I mean dozens, of victims and their families who won this monumental civil case. The offender is a guy named Mark Burnt, who was a longtime beloved teacher at the school who, among other things, exposed himself to students, fondled students, and fed his semen to these elementary school kids. And because he committed crimes over such a long period of time, Michael and I follow a timeline to keep track of the documented crimes, the times they were reported, and how they were ignored or minimized over and over again. This is an important story as there are lessons to be learned, and we are so grateful for this frontline look into this. Thanks to our lion-hearted guest, civil justice warrior Michael Carrillo, sharing his time and lessons with us. Here's another trigger warning. This episode will cover child sexual abuse, so please use your discretion when listening. Resources are in the show notes, and please know you are never alone. Hello, Michael Carrillo. Thank you so much for coming today. If you wouldn't mind, can you give us a brief intro of what you do? Sure. Thank you for having me, by the way. So I am an attorney, first of all, but our focus is in child sexual abuse. We represent students, minors, or former minors who were sexually abused by teachers, coaches, aides while they were at their schools. And we represent them in civil cases against the school districts, YMCAs, after-school programs, the church, things like that. Okay, so let me back up now and let our listeners know how I even met you and why I asked you to come on this podcast. It makes perfect sense because my coworker and dear friend Monica Barunda, whose episode actually just dropped yesterday on the Lionhearted podcast, she introduced me to you. She and I had have a troubling case of uh, child abuse that we thought you might be interested in. And she said, I know this great guy. He does this work for all the right reasons. And he has invited us to come to his office. It ended up being a Saturday, which was the following day, because you respected and understood our urgency and you made yourself available on a Saturday. So there I was driving to Pasadena on a Saturday morning to present you with these documents. And we went over it for about two hours in your office. I remember at that point thinking, this person is absolutely a lion-hearted 
fighter for children. So I was so honored and inspired to meet you. So here you are. And I want to get into a case that you were involved in. That is a huge case, very well known in the media. Before we get there, I always like to know about a person's childhood and their upbringing, as I think it paints a picture of how you got to where you are now. So, Michael, tell us a little about how you were raised, where, and what brought you to this point today. Sure. Well, I'll just say that I never wanted to be an attorney. Growing up, I thought I never want to do what my dad does because I thought there has to be a better way. He's always at the office. It seems like we're always struggling financially as a family, which Mm -hmm. is kind of strange because people think an attorney automatically making a lot of money, but that's not the case. So we grew up in South Pasadena, very middle class area. But from what I remember, it wasn't a middle class lifestyle. It was a little bit more difficult that, mm. than that for us. And I went to college, not sure what I was going to do at Purdue University. Mm. And I went to law school, Whittier Law School. And I think what drives me still to this day is something from my childhood where, <clears throat> and I've told my parents this, I went to bed a lot of nights hungry. And I told myself I never wanted to to do that when I was older. I told myself I always want to be able to feed myself. And that seems like a basic necessity, but mm. it wasn't there. And so that kind of drove me. And when I was graduating college, I thought, well, you know, what what can I do? I don't know what to do. So I just went to law school and that's the path I chose. Now, after law school, I was doing criminal defense and family law and <laughs> man, that was miserable. How so? You know, they say criminal defense is the worst people on their best behavior, and family law is the best people on their worst behavior. You know, fighting for people that have been charged, that's their constitutional rights, of course, but I just didn't like it. I didn't see it as something that was interesting. Family law was divorce and custody, and it was ugly. So I just didn't want to do that forever. So along came this case with my dad and myself. We teamed up for once and set me on a path to a much brighter, much more positive future that wound me up, I guess, here being invited to talk to you today. You know, it's interesting you said that. So your dad was a lawyer and people might be surprised to know that there were nights that you went to bed hungry. Help us understand how that was the case. Well, when I was uh, younger, my mother went to live with my sister in Mexico for a large portion of my high school period. And my dad is, I always say this, he's probably the worst businessman I've ever met or dealt with. (laughs) And so he would take on cases that were, you know, it wasn't for the money. He fought for people, immigrants, uh, Mm. people that didn't have a voice. And Mm. now I look back and I think, wow, it's very honorable, respectful, not bringing home the bacon, so Mm. to speak. But helping people for a cause, I can appreciate it now. But in high school, it was a struggle. I was starving. (laughs) And, you know, we've talked about this as a family since then, and Mm. they've apologized, but it's what drives me, honestly. Wow. Okay. So now you work with your dad. Is that right? We do. And I uh, run the business side. Thank goodness. Yes. (laughs) You came here to talk about this one case, and I believe it's called the Miramonte case. It is the largest settlement ever recorded against a school district in the country for the sexual abuse of minors. Tell me, how did this come to you? Because my dad had built a reputation for 
helping the Latino community in Los Angeles. When this news broke about this case in 2012, the reporters were interviewing families and families were wondering, well, who do I turn to? Who do I go to? There's not, there's no billboards for sexual abuse lawyers like they are for car accident cases. Mm. And so the reporters would refer my dad uh, to these cases. And at the time I was toiling away doing criminal defense family law, my dad says, hey, I think this is something big. You should join me. And I'll never forget my, a friend of mine at the time said, hey, you, you should probably join your dad on that. And so I went with my dad a lot to the Miramonte South Central Los Angeles area because families would start calling and they'd say, hey, we'd love to meet working class folks. So we'd have Mm -hmm. to meet nights, weekends with these families. And we'd go house to house with the people that called us and just start talking to people. And they had no idea what to do. You know, spoon feeding semen to children. It's not like it's, (laughs) you have no idea where to turn to as a parent. It's funny because I think when we're in this line of work, we so casually drop things like you just said that most people find horrific. I know. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, no. I completely get it. You can't help but say it because it's so egregious and unbelievable. If it weren't true, people would think it was a sick work of fiction, right? Tell us what this teacher was accused of doing. He was uncovered not because school officials reported him, even though they had known he had committed serious, serious acts of sexual misconduct in the school since the 1980s. He was reported by a CVS worker who was processing photographs and thought, man, these photographs are kind of odd. They're kind of strange. Like, why are these kids being photographed with cookies in their mouths halfway? And why are they being photographed with cockroaches on their arms and on their bodies. And that CVS worker in Redondo Beach reported that to the local police department. They undertook an investigation and said, hey, this is more of a Los Angeles area incident because it involved kids in in Los Angeles, South Central Los Angeles. That's how it initially came up. If, If not for this CVS worker who, let's just be clear, saw these photos that weren't lewd, right? No, they they weren't. They, they were just odd. And he or she knew that in their gut when they saw this. Yes. And it's something I've come to find out is that photo processors at CVS, for example, are mandatory reporters too, meaning they have to report child abuse. So she thought this was very strange. Yeah, it wasn't depicting any sexual mm-hmm. acts, mm-hmm. overtly sexual things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why maybe he thought he could get away with it by processing photos the old school way at a CVS. Right. Kudos to this CVS worker. But actually, weren't there so many complaints leading up to this? Tragically, there were complaints from the 1980s and not the late 80s either. We're talking about 1980, 1981, in which... It goes back to him dropping his pants on a field trip. Oh, you're pulling up some of the notes. Wow. Yes, they posted a lot of these online because we wanted the community to know how heinous and disgusting these administrators allowed this to happen for years. So one of the notes, which is what you're pulling up right now, is Mr. Kimball was a principal at the time, and it was reported that he had dropped his pants on a field trip. And... Mr. Byrne explains that, oh, it was just some loose pants, loose shorts, whatever it was. But those drop pants incidents kept happening in the 80s, and Mm. those principals did nothing about it. There is a photocopied note 
where the perpetrator, Mark Berndt, spelled B-E-R-N-D-T, took the class on a field trip. And this is elementary school, to be clear. Yes. And he dropped his pants in front of students and parents complained to LA Unified. But of course, nothing was done. This was 1983. And Mark Berndt wrote to the principal... He wrote, Mr. Kimball, thanks again for the support you gave me during our discussion this morning. I sincerely apologize for any embarrassment I caused either to you or the parents. P.S. I did learn at least one thing for sure, not to take students to the museum while wearing baggy shorts, exclamation mark. Thanks again, all caps, Mark. So that illustrates the casualness of it all, the friendliness of it all. And clearly that nothing was done. And in fact, Mr. Kimball, he felt gave him support. You said that happened multiple times. Multiple times in the 80s, he was caught with his pants dropped or students had reported that they thought he was masturbating in the classroom, that they thought they saw some sort of Vaseline jar while he was masturbating. I mean, horrific stuff. Horrific. And again, this is elementary school. I saw somewhere that he was teaching third and fifth graders. I read something about the girls who complained about him masturbating in class. Not only was there no action taken against him, the girls were put into counseling. Yes, yes. And we actually spoke to one of those girls, and she always wondered, why was I in counseling? What what did I do wrong? (laughs) And it's like, you did nothing wrong, you poor thing. I mean, it's just infuriating and maddening. How do you explain to a child? That the world is upside down, that they report something that they should never have to report, but they actually muster up incredible courage to report it. And then they effectively are punished for it. You know, it's hard to explain. One of your Mm -hmm. prior podcasts with Monica talked Mm -hmm. about sort of the culture at home, right? You don't want to rock the boat at home. Mm -hmm. Well, these administrators, they don't want their name on some big sex abuse scandal. They... A lot of times we'll give the perp the benefit of the doubt. He's charismatic. He's social. Everybody loves Mr. Byrne. That's what we kept hearing. Everybody loved Mr. Byrne. He wouldn't do this to anybody. And yet we know, of course, it's always the ones that are beloved because that's how they gain access is through trust and charisma. Yes. They're not the guys hiding in the bushes like everybody thinks of sexual predators. They're the ones that are the religious leaders, the teachers, the coaches that everybody loves. Right. And as a school that is charged with the well-being, at least from morning until afternoon and sometimes evening, of thousands of children, you would think that administrators would know what to look out for and how to protect kids. And yet it seems that when allegations come up, that they should take very seriously, the instinct or the knee-jerk reaction, the reflex, is to protect the alleged perpetrator. Yes, I think the training needs to be more in-depth. And of course, we're talking about the 80s and 90s now. There were still child abuse reporting laws. But what we've seen over the years, at least in my experience in, in deposing or interviewing these people, is that they feel like they almost have to walk in on sexual acts in order to report it, when that's not the case. You could save a kid from future trauma if you just report some weird behavior. People are scared to rock the boat. They just want to get their checks and go home. But you're missing an opportunity to save a kid from some severe trauma. 
So that to me highlights the importance of the culture surrounding the workers, the staff and the administrators, if they feel they would be supported by reporting things in good faith, then they might be more likely to. Yes, it's from the top down. Their first thought is covering the ass of the school, isn't it? Yes. And is that for, I'm sure that's for many reasons, the largest one probably being financial. Well, financial and reputation. And reputation. Yeah, I think, you know, everybody's scared of lawyers or having to go to court or things like that. So they just keep their heads down. At the expense of kids. Yeah, I I think they rationalize it somehow in their minds that they're doing something right by not reporting this to police or by doing the bare minimum. But that's not what's required. The law says that you have to protect these kids as if they're your own when they're at school, like you talked about. It's called in loco parentis, meaning Mm -hmm. you take the role of the parent when you're there. So what parent would allow a teacher to masturbate in the classroom and just say, oh, hey, kids, go back to the classroom? When you are involved in suing the school and getting the largest settlement recorded to date, what is your hope that the school will act differently because this is now a precedent and they're terrified reputationally and financially? Sure. I mean, the hope is that through a lawsuit, it will affect some sort of change. Obviously, the only justice we can get is is money justice, financial compensation for the people that we represent. Now, in Miramonte, there were some changes that came as a result of it, and we're very proud of it. Mm. Uh, An abuse hotline. Uh, The superintendent at the time looked through all sorts of prior complaints. They had the principals look at all complaints and see if there's anything that they needed to report. The problem is that the superintendent got in trouble with the union at the time, saying that that may have violated their contract that they had, what have you. But it it did spur some change. And I think the problem is sometimes people think of civil lawyers like myself as like the ambulance chasers, the billboard guys. But, you know, here I'm just trying to make an impact for these kids that I represent. And if it causes a change that will affect future kids' lives, hey, that's fantastic. And that's really what these people come to me for. It's they want to affect change so that other kids don't have to suffer like they do. And in this case, how many kids were affected? So some of the cases were settled early. 60 victims of Mark Burns settled very early on. And then uh, 60 others took it further in litigation. And we were part of that second part, the second 60. And there was a couple other firms. John Manley, who has represented the Michigan State gymnast, was mm-hmm. involved. Uh, a gentleman named Brian Claypool as well. So it wasn't just us. And I don't want to say I'm claiming credit for all mm-hmm. these this amazing mm-hmm. result. It was a, a definite team effort. Going back uh, through the timeline so that our listeners can really understand how pervasive this guy's abuse and misconduct was and how many times people tried to speak up and it was denied at every turn. So we had the complaints of public masturbation followed two years later with complaints of indecent exposure. I see something about him wearing short shorts with no underwear and sitting on the edge of his desk exposing penis and testicles to class. This was a regular thing. So I don't don't want you to think it was just like these couple incidents. It it happened throughout the 80s and kids would report that nothing happened. It, It makes sense this was chronic. A person is not going to act so differently one day and then for years nothing. In response to the complaint, the principal said, I know, baby, parents complain about him. There's nothing I can do. He's got tenure. That was uh, Eloise Blanton, the principal at the time. And I think what she was referring to is Mr. Byrne had been there for years. So in terms of the union and trying to fire somebody, 
it is more difficult, but we're talking about kids' safety. And that comment was remembered by the student and the mother that, that was told to. I mean, how do you forget mm-hmm. something like that? When they're reporting indecent exposure, some serious sexual abuse, and, and the principal says, hey, there's nothing I can do at the time. It's horrific. I just try to imagine being that parent for a second, walking in there with or without my child, let's say, to make this complaint and to be told that. Can you even imagine? You're a parent. I am a parent. I don't know what I'd do. I, I'm just getting angry thinking yeah. about it. I mean, this is what I'll say. Sadly, these perps go into these low-income communities where maybe there's English as a second language. Mm-hmm. One parent may not be around, relying on grandparents to raise the kids. Mm-hmm. They, they know where they're attacking. And mm-hmm. the, the people that reported throughout the years, the parents weren't English speakers. Or that wasn't their primary language. And so a lot of times these educated administrators would chalk it up to just parents complaining. And then the perpetrator knows, what's this parent going to do? They don't have power. They have no power. I'm the teacher. Yeah. I got the backing of the principal. They're not going to tell me anything. And the union. It's disgusting. And then I see another thing here about a fondling that was reported while a girl was taking a test. He reached over and fondled her. And again, she she reported it, but the DA declined to file charges due to insufficient evidence. Yeah, that one was reported. And she was, like the description said, in the middle of taking a test and he leans over and touches her in her genital areas. Mm-hmm. And this is a problem that I've tried to rectify with the L.A. County District Attorney's Office is that whenever they prosecute someone, they take the report just as is. But what they don't do all the time is they don't ask for the prior school records from the local school where that person was teaching. And a lot of times that'll tell you, well, wait a minute, he was caught with other kids doing this years ago. Why wouldn't they ask for a history? (laughs) It's not part of their standard procedure. Yes. And I've tried to get this changed. And I've worked with a DA that I know and trust who I won't mention his name. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get him in trouble. But we have tried to affect that change because we know for a fact that for every one report, there's probably eight others. Exactly. And Nothing was changed in the DA's office. I think there's a lot of politics involved. They don't want to get involved with the school because obviously this is the largest school district in second largest in the country, right? But in the 90s when this person reported the fondling, Mm -hmm. if the school had gone back or if the DA's office had maybe gone back and said, hey, let me see all those reports. Let me get a a Mm -hmm. warrant for that. Maybe they might have uncovered more and they maybe could have filed it. In that case, it could have stopped all this other abuse. Right. I am truly shocked. That seems insane to me that you would investigate something in a silo as we know past behavior predicts future behavior and you're saying that someone has helped you or has attempted to change this but it still has not as far as you understand yeah it's basically like you said it's a snapshot they're just getting the the one report of one student maybe it's not enough because it's he said she said Right. right so we tried to change that and just the bureaucracy behind it was impossible to affect that change I'm reading here, mother complains of cookie photo. Student brings home a photo taken by Mark Burnt of this girl eating a cookie. And it says the mom is upset and calls LAUSD. The principal transfers the girl to a different class and nothing is done to Burnt. But what I love about this is that this mom is clued in and she's going with her instincts when she looks at this photo that is not lewd, but feels something in her stir up that this is not right and actually takes the action of reporting it, and then nothing happens. 
time and time again, nothing happens. What I always tell parents too when I speak to them mm-hmm. is they always tell me afterwards like, oh, my gut said something. Listen mm-hmm. to that gut. There's a reason for it. Just because yeah. somebody puts their blessing on this teacher or this perp doesn't mean that you should stop feeling your natural gut. It's easy for me to say after the fact, of course, I'm not judging these parents. They've yep. been through a lot and none of this is their fault. Yep. But just trust that gut. Right. In 2011, Mark Burnt is informed that he's investigated by LASD. And this was after CBS reported it. So that was the thing that moved the needle enough for Sheriff's Department to say, hey, we might have a problem here. Yes. And and I'll never forget, they brought him into the office and the school and the sheriff's basically said, you're going to be on leave. You need to take time away. Nobody immediately thought, hey, there might be some evidence in his room. And so they were going to let him walk back to his room and destroy all sorts of evidence, which he tried to do. He went in there ahead of the sheriff's detectives, tried to destroy some evidence. Luckily, they pilfered through some trash and found some DNA of his, which is how they connected all this. But if it wasn't for the last minute thinking of some sharp detectives to say, wait a minute, why are we going to let him back into the room, the scene of the crime? We wouldn't have the DNA evidence that, that we have now to prove all this. Okay, Michael, tell us, and, and our listeners are going to be horrified when you explain this, tell us the significance of the DNA. <laughs> what Mark Burnt did was he would bring his semen to school in little coffee creamer cups or in little jars. And he would have the kids on Fridays play a tasting game as a sort of reward for the week. What he would do is he would ask the kids if they want a cookie and if they want some sugar or cream on top. He would go to the closet, he would come back, put creamer on top, and then Apparently, the students would say he'd also add extra sugar to sort of cover the taste. He would give the kids these cookies and say, okay, bite it, but don't eat it. And then he would take a photograph of the kids as they were biting and eating it, getting some sort of sexual joy out of watching these kids eat his semen. Other times, he would blindfold them and put this substance, which we later came to find out was his semen, in spoons and spoon feed this to the kids. And also his classroom would have roaches in it as a display for the kids, you know, like, oh, gross bugs. But he would have the kids line up and he would put cockroaches on their arms and on their bodies. And he would take photographs of them with the cockroaches on their bodies. And It was obviously strange and weird, and the kids thought, ew, these cockroaches on my body. Well, when they searched Mark Burns' home, they found necrophilia porn, which is the pornography that refers to uh, people having sex with dead bodies. And so there'd be, I guess, cockroaches on these bodies. And so what he would be doing is recreating this necrophilia porn with these little kids, eight, nine-year-old kids. I mean, it gives me chills to just think about how disgusting this man was. Yeah, it really takes your breath away, all these families and kids suffered. Thank goodness for that sheriff's deputy or detective who thought about that evidence, because I talk often on this podcast that there needs to be so much evidence 
to corroborate kids' stories. And if not for the photographs and the CVS worker reporting it as evidence, if not for the DNA, who knows if he ever would have been caught because it would have just been the voices of the kids versus him, right? Yeah, that's that would be pretty much it. Yeah. I mean, they had to stake him out too and waited for him to spit on the sidewalk afterwards to match the DNA they found in the classroom with the DNA, obviously, that they saw from him. The sheriff's de- detectives in this case did, did a pretty thorough job to to piece that all together. But you're right, without that evidence, we wouldn't have anything. I mean, a lot of the kids thought that they might get pregnant because mm-hmm. they consumed this. They thought they might have STDs because, I mean, they had no idea. We're talking about little kids. Have you ever represented plaintiffs or survivors in a case without evidence like this, where it was just their voices? I mean, we have. We have. And, you know, maybe the district attorney rejected the case Mm -hmm. and we, you know, have to put the story together as best we can. But as you know, in these cases, a lot of times there's red flags that go back a while. Sometimes we don't have them. We took a case to trial last summer against the perp that was caught molesting two girls that were part of his track team. And luckily he was convicted, but there was no evidence. There was no physical evidence. In the civil case, unfortunately, we lost that case because the Mm -hmm. jury didn't find that there was enough prior red flags against the perp to put the school on notice that they had a problem with him. So we've had our share of Amazing cases like this, and I say amazing, I I don't mean it in a rude or disrespectful way, but amazing in terms of how horrific the prior evidence was. That helped you make the case. Yes. So in this particular case, he was told that he needed to step down. Didn't he then sue LA Unified to say that the way he was let go or asked to leave was too vague or something like that? Yes, and they paid him out. Mind you, he'd been molesting mm-hmm. kids since 1980. The, that's mm-hmm. what we have on record. 1980, not the 80s, 1980, mm-hmm. 81 school year. Right. And so he got this law firm that represents people that are going through dismissals from LA Unified. Represented them, the school district, thinking that they didn't want to deal with it as they usually do. They just paid him out. They paid him out. This guy that was spoon feeding his <laughs> semen to children. Oh, my gosh. Then I see that he was arrested January 2012. And then a month later, LA Unified admits to destroying records containing allegations of sexual abuse at LA public schools dating back to 1988. The LAUSD had like a child abuse protection unit that would gather all the uh, suspected child abuse reports and any sort of allegations against teachers. Was that like the cover-up squad? I don't understand. What were they doing? No, I actually think they had an actual purpose. They actually did do good work. They sort of monitored the situation on campuses, and I think they did a great job. But once the person that was in charge of that office retired, they just took some of the files to the general counsel to hide them from lawyers like me, because then it's attorney-client protected, Mm. or they just destroyed some of them. We found out later that they also withheld photographs during our, our case for two, three years. Trying to say that uh, we didn't request it, absolutely requested them. And the judge sanctioned them in in our case for hiding photographs. You said they were doing good work. But if they were, wouldn't they have seen what was happening with Mark Burnt? Of course. And I don't mean that they're doing good work like preventing abuse. Because we know the LUSD is one of the worst out there. I mean, we have so many cases against them even now. But 
I think the intention was good. I think mm. the thought process was good. Mm. Keep all the suspected child abuse reports, keep records, try to see where the problem areas are. But it was basically manned by one one woman and that's it for the second largest school district. So it, it wasn't going to do the job it was supposed to, but it had good intentions. I see. So then LA Unified pays 40K settlement to Burnt to settle its dismissal case against him. <laughs> I mean, the nerve for him to sue the school. I mean, it's just shameful. Then I see LA Unified settles with parents. Burnt pleads no contest in 2013. And then November 21st, 2014, it says in the largest civil settlement LA Unified has ever agreed to, lawyers for the district agreed to pay a total of nearly $140 million to dozens of students of Miramonte Elementary School who had filed a civil lawsuit against a district over its handling of the sexual abuse case. So how did you feel when that was happening? I think more relieved for these kids. The first round of the case was going to trial, meaning there there was only about four of the kids that were actually going to go to trial in this Mm -hmm. first round. And the little girl that we had nominated to be in the first part of the trial group, she had a tough life. She still does. Mm. And to save her from the horror from having to testify, the distress related to that, her and her whole family, that girl that we represented, not only was she molested, but her little sister was molested too by the same Mark Byrne. So it, it was relief for her, for, for the other kids. It was an amazing result that we're mm-hmm. very happy about. Again, it wasn't just me or mm-hmm. my office. Mm-hmm. It was others involved, John Manley yep. and, and Vince Finaldi, those folks. But it was historic and it felt like that. Wow. You are on the civil side of things. Did you ever consider working on the criminal side? I know you did defense, but what about prosecution? I, I just couldn't. <laughs> I don't see myself in that respect. I I respect what they do. I have good friends that are DAs and I love and respect what they do, especially putting these people away for a long time. I just couldn't do it myself. But I'm glad that he took a plea for 25 years to save these kids from having to testify. Right. In the criminal side, the burden just seems so high. And I've always felt like it should be lower when it comes to kids because they're totally different. Their brains, the dynamics of abuse, everything is different than if they were adults. But I also understand that defendants have a constitutional right. It's just very hard to square those things. It, it pains you to say it. I yes. can see it. <laughs> yes. But I will yeah. add this. I wish that more cases were filed and that DAs had more strength. Mm-hmm. To file some of these cases where it may be he said, she said, and they back down, they don't file or they dismiss the case, you know, let the jury decide. That's my issue with it. And and when you get DAs, maybe in some of these outer courthouses that aren't directly supervised by the main DA's office in downtown, I feel like some things just kind of slide. They don't file all the cases that they need to. And I know in your experience, you've seen that before as well. Completely. So once that happened, did that change your caseload? It did. This was my first ever child sexual abuse case. Mm. And after this, I think the community thought this is pretty much all we did. So we started getting all sorts of calls for it. And now that's a predominant part of our practice. Wow. It's sad that you'll never go out of business doing this work. But 
incredible that you have focused on this. I have no doubt that there are countless families that are so grateful to you and your dad. Do you, you continue to work with him? I do. Okay. Okay. How many fights do you get in with him on a daily basis? <laughs> you know, over the years, it's been easier because he sort of let the reins go to me a little bit in the new school ways. Ah. But it is a blessing to be able to represent these kids and take them through this journey. You know, a lot of times the kids are interviewed by the police and DAs and then they'll go through the criminal process, but the families, the next call may be to us. And so a lot of times DAs and the victim services, of course, they're there to help and support, but maybe a lot of the questions that don't get answered, they call us. And so we're with these families from the very beginning and we take them through the process as if we were DAs. Of course, we're not. And the DAs have more of the heavy lifting, but we still have to be a guide and be a resource for these families. Oh, absolutely. I'm sure you're acting as victim advocates at times, helping them navigate this Byzantine system, even under the best of circumstances. And then with all the stress and, oh, I I can't imagine. In terms of the payout, what does that look like? We just hear this huge number, but what does it actually amount to and when is it paid out and to who in what way? That's a good question. These kids, since they're minors, uh, they won't get paid until they're 18 years of age. Mm. And a lot of times we do what's called structured settlements or annuities, which allow them to get payments, you know, at 18 for a college fund, maybe later for a down payment on the house. The guardian at the time gets to decide, well, these are the payouts that they want or that they're going to have, my child's going to have for their future because maybe they're, they have a different interest than maybe college. Maybe they want to go to vocational school Mm. or cosmetology school or something. So they pick the plan as best for the kid. And so they'll get paid down the road. Sadly, we've seen a lot of these cases where the child, once they become an adult, they'll sell the structure to like J.G. Wentworth, one of those companies, and they get pennies on the dollar. And then they get taken advantage of by all sorts of people, family members, boyfriends, husbands, and then they end up with nothing. So it is kind of sad, but we, we try to set them off on the best path. But then there are other cases where we see their path through college, grad school. We still get invited to the graduation parties. It's so rewarding to see that. That's why we do this, really, to see those moments and to be there and to just for them to come up to us sometimes and say, like, thank you. Thank you for allowing me to pursue my dreams. I also think it is important to mention the sort of less than ideal situation sometimes that result. I'm not terribly surprised to hear that they can still be taken advantage of. Yeah, it's it's sad. We've seen it a lot and we try mm. to counsel them even yeah. afterwards. You know, our representation doesn't end when the case ends. It's, you know, we tell them all the time, we'll be there for you no matter what. We'll always be your lawyer. Even if it's not an area that we focus on, we can still be a guide and help you. But you know what they say too about victims. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times they're victimized again yeah. down the road, either sexual abuse or some other way. Right. And then who actually pays? Where does this money come from? Well, it definitely doesn't come from Mark Burnt, who's sitting in a jail cell. And when we went to go take his deposition up in NorCal at the correctional facility that he's at, he hadn't seen the sunlight, actual sunlight in two years. And that's because the couple times that he's been out, he was physically assaulted. He's has trouble with his eyes. He can't see out of one eye and pain in his back from being assaulted in the chow line. So the money's not going to come from him. The money will come from the school district. LA Unified has a $7 billion operating budget, so they have substantial assets. But a lot of times it's covered by insurance. Now, with this case, the insurance company that covered 
a portion of the uh, time when this abuse was happening, ended up suing the district because they said that essentially the district paid out too much and they shouldn't have paid what they did. So there's all sorts of litigation from every aspect because of the uh, sizable amount involved. Right. Of course, no one wants to pay this. I've always felt like for insurers to insure youth-serving organizations, they should have the youth-serving organizations meet a high bar for training. Like, we will only insure you if every single year you do this training for every adult that steps onto your campus. Well, you have to look at it from the insurance perspective, right? So Mm -hmm. let's just say the insurance company says, we're going to train you on XYZ points one through 10, right? Mm -hmm. And one through 10 is any sort of reasonable suspicion, anything you do, you have to report it. Well, what happens if on, you know, two or three of those bullet points, Mm -hmm. one of the teachers or administrators misses that? Well, that's an automatic sort of negligence case for a person like me to prove to a jury. And so the insurance company is basically like damage control. I've dealt with these insurance company reps. They could care less about the kids. They only care about the bottom line. Right. And I have been around the block long enough to know that I used to think you could just appeal to people and companies and organizations by talking about the kids and protecting kids. But I quickly learned that you need to speak their language and appeal to the bottom line because that's what they care about. Yes. So I'm just wondering if there's some way to make that work where, hey, it's in your interest for your bottom line to be stricter with child protection policies, you know? I think it comes from the school districts themselves because you can't rely on the insurance companies. They're just worried about the money. Mm. I've personally offered to go and teach various school districts, mm-hmm. speak to the administrators there, especially the school districts that I know have a problem. I said, mm-hmm. I will conduct a training. Mm-hmm. Free of charge. I'm not trying to make any money. And of course, they reject me or the lawyers say, hey, we're not going to let you do that. My interest is only protecting kids, but they don't care. They see it as he's going to make some money out of it somehow. I really I truly think it has to come from the school district, the heads up, and they need to recognize that mandatory reporting training is not enough. That yep. these little vignettes that they show that they get from these insurance companies about how to prevent abuse is not enough. Because those little vignettes, I've seen them. They're the worst training you can imagine. <laughs> it's almost laughable, right? It is. Yeah. So LUSD goes over this mandatory reporting training two times a year, first semester and second semester, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. they think that that's enough. Mm-mm. It's it's Mm-mm. not. So I hear your point that it's really from the leadership. And leadership affects policies, affects culture, and can require adequate training. So you mentioned when you went to visit Mark Burnt. I was struck by what you said about him and how he came across to you. Can you tell our listeners about that? Yes. When when we went to go take his deposition, he was in the orange garment. Mm-hmm. He was brought in by the correctional officers. And after hearing all these kids' stories, you want to hate the man. You want to just be disgusted by his presence, be disgusted by everything about him. But throughout the process of taking his deposition, you can see his charm. You can see his personality. And he comes off as like a guy you'd like to have a beer with. Of course, you're always taught or told that these molesters are the people hiding in the bushes when really they're not. They're the charming individuals that charm the parents, charm the school, charm the kids. And that's exactly who he was. He was charming. He was very well-spoken. He was clearly educated. And it just threw me for shock. That is such an important point, 
so important that I would like to end on that because if there's one lesson from my perspective is to highlight to parents that, again, we know that 90% of the time kids are abused by someone that they know and trust. It's also important to remember that it's precisely the people around your kids that you wouldn't suspect because they are so charming, because they're so kind, because they are beloved. And important to remember that a perpetrator can show your child kindness and also be an abuser. That is is my lesson that I hope to convey to parents. Michael, do you have any last lessons that you feel like are important to impart that you learned from from this case, from the current cases you're working on, or anything else? The the lesson is be involved in your kids' schools. Be there, let the teachers, let the coaches, not even just schools, but uh, organizations, be involved. Let them know that you're there, you're going to be there, because sadly, it's the families, the parents are not as involved. And I know that's extremely difficult, especially for working class families to do that. But, you know, try as best you can. Send one parent, let them know you're going to be supervising. Walk in unannounced to your kid's school, even though they may say, oh, you can't do that. I don't care. You do it because you're there to protect your kids. And it brings me back to when I was a kid. My parents wouldn't let me do sleepovers at anybody's house. And I hated that fact. I hated that I couldn't sleep over. But now I totally get it. And so even though your kid may be embarrassed, and we talked about your young ones too, they may be embarrassed that mom or dad is coming to school or why are they so around? Like, leave me alone. No, no, no. They will thank you for it later. And that's the lesson that I would like to give to everybody. Michael, thank you so, so much, not just for being here today, but for the work that you do. I hope you know that I think there really is no greater calling than to use a law degree to protect kids. And that's exactly what you're doing. I'm so grateful to all the families that you've helped. I am honored to know you. Thank you so much again. The feeling's mutual. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And that concludes our episode. I hope you are heartened to know there are people like Michael who exist, who are fighting the good fight and in it for the long haul. Also, I hope you feel more emboldened to be involved with your kids' schools and other places you entrust them to. As frustrating as the ignored or minimized reports were, they ended up being critical touch points when it came time for prosecution. So don't hold back if you sense something is wrong. Lastly, it's frightening how adults will protect the institution over the child, and there are several reasons and dynamics to blame for that. We've seen it time and time again. So what it means is that we need to do our best with the adult voices we have to demand that adults and youth-serving organizations do better to protect children. Thank you for caring and for listening. The Lionhearted Podcast is produced by Amanda Kelso and me, Andrea Harner. Special thanks goes to Kevin Tossi for editing and, of course, to our guest, Michael Carrillo. Follow us at the Lionhearted Podcast on all socials and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a few friends. And please leave us a good review as that helps spread the word. Thank you so much for listening.